This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Mike Alkin, who is also a hedge fund manager focusing on uranium investments. Mike and I have been talking for over a year now about our podcasts, and I'm very happy to have him talk to me today. So, Mike, welcome to this podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you here. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Same here. <laughs> Thanks. This year has been very eventful for uranium investors. We had the resolution of Section 232, although we are still waiting for the outcome of the working group. We had the World Nuclear Association Symposium in London. And uh, a few days ago, there was the International Uranium Fuel Seminar in Nashville. Now, for the people who could not attend the seminar, could you please let us know what happened in Nashville in general? Sure. Uh, so it, this has... The WNA has is more of a global symposium, if you will, the World Nuclear. That was in September in London. Uh, but you saw very few U.S. fuel buyers there. The NEI, the uh, Nuclear Energy Institute, holds uh, their seminar here in the U.S. And it was heavily attended by U.S. fuel buyers. And the U.S. fuel buyers are the uh, by a group. Uh, the U.S. buys the most uh, uranium in the world. So that it was uh, you get in on a Sunday, leave on Wednesday. And there are a number of panels uh, that discuss the demand side the supply side, what's going on on the, uh, on the uh, policy front, uh, what's going on with uh, advanced fuels, what's going on with different types of new reactors, advanced reactors. So it's uh, people from throughout the fuel cycle, if you will. Uh, attended there. So uh, I believe your presentation, which is always a must-see for everyone interested in the sector, was about price discovery in the uranium market, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, could you let us know a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. You know, because the NEI um, is a private organization, it's a trade body, and they charge their members to attend. Um, I guess they'll, I, I think they probably release it at some time. So out of respect for them, I, I won't go into the whole thing. But essentially, I was asked by them to speak to the attendees at the conference, and many of them are nuclear fuel buyers, which is buying uranium. They buy conversion services and enrichment services and fabrication. So I was asked to uh, give my view. Uh, and, and the reason we talk about price discovery is, as you know, since Fukushima, I think uh, the number is about 750 million pounds of uranium have not been replaced under contract. Uh, while these contracts have rolled off, we've not seen a lot of replacement of those contracts. We do see some every year. There is some contracting, but not not in mass. And you're, it, those those remaining uh, contracts that were signed at, at much higher prices are very long in a tooth and mostly, mostly gone. So you will be... Uh, entering a period where uh, for utilities to have comfort with the security of their supply, they will need to embark on quite a bit of contracting. And over the last uh, almost, uh, I guess, since January of 18, since we have had uh, uh, the trade action, the Section 232 petition that was filed in the, with the United States Department of Commerce, you really uh, saw fuel buyers pull out of the market because it created great uncertainty uh, as to, uh, for the U.S. especially in the 
the U.S. leads the way pretty much because of the size of the uranium that they buy, the, the poundage, uh, that they were not sure if it would be mandated or imposed upon them where they'd have to buy their fuel. So you, you've seen a lot of uh, delays in terms of purchasing. 2018 was a big year for the spot market where I think it was 88, 89 million pounds traded, which is 2x what you normally would see because the spot, the spot market is not where they rely upon their, uh, their uranium. Uh, they want to lock it up under a contract. Uh, and actually, uh, not to di- digress, but, but uh, the question was asked in a live poll at the NEI, the head of marketing for Kazataprom uh, asked the audience how many people believed that the long-term contracting was necessary versus, and the answer was 80% said long-term contracting is needed. So with Section 232, and I know we say there was a resolution to it, but there was more uncertainty added because President Trump ordered a 90-day working group that took you through the middle of October, and then they couldn't come to uh, their findings in time, so that it got extended to sometime in the next. Uh, a week, 10 days or something like that. So it, you've had this pall over the market for, uh, what do we know, to 21, 22 months where price discovery in size, in real size, let's sit down and talk turkey type stuff, uh, has been has been delayed. So I wanted to, I was asked to uh, share my views uh, and our, our insights uh, by the NEI with uh, to share that with the fuel buyers. Interesting. So uh, in respect to you and the NEI, I won't ask for more details on your presentation. I, I mean, I'm happy to go into it a little bit. You know, I can give uh, some of the things if you, if you want me to, I could share a little bit of, you know, first, you have to understand who you're talking to, right? So you're talking to fuel buyers, but why don't you, you know, you go ahead and ask me and, and we'll go from there. No, can, can you, can you fill us in the details, whatever you can tell us? That would be good. Yeah. So they're really asking me to speak to fuel buyers. I mean, there are other people there, but that's the key message that they want me to get across as to a, a our view uh, of what the market looks like. And <clears throat> so we're talking to fuel buyers, and it's interesting now. I've I've been around the uranium markets about four years now. When I first started going to these conferences, whether it was the WNA or the NEI, um, I you know you're a complete outsider. You don't know anyone. You show up, and as you know, I've seen you there. You're there's three or four investors at these, right? There's hundreds of people, 300 people and three or four investors. Sure. So four years ago, it was, oh, you poor fool. Why would you come around the uranium market? And they're happy to speak to you. <laughs> what, are you kidding? <clears throat> Why would you do this to yourself? And you say, okay, great. And and they they're, they just view that as, oh, look at this nice dumb guy who decided to learn about this. Uh, and then three years ago, I, I, you know, over that time, you meet people, you do phone calls with them, you and then you see them a couple of times at, at conferences, you and you ask some more questions, and whether it's fuel buyers or physical uranium traders. And then by year three... Uh, or the second year I was doing this, uh, it was a little, you know, I had a lot more knowledge, a lot more depth of understanding of the market. And they were still uh, happy to give you time and talk. And then I started to go public in 2017 in the springish, late spring, I think it was, I forget, late spring, early summer, something like that of 2017 about my views. Because during that time period, and you know this from from being a contrarian investor, Marcelo, especially in markets that are really have had very long cycles one way or the other, either overly optimistic bull markets or overly pessimistic bear markets in, in those times 
type of uh, markets, you tend to see the sector become dramatically underfollowed by the institutions. And where you really can get be fortunate is when they're very opaque industries. Uh, so in the first year, 18 months, you know, I was modeling out every reactor in the world, every mine in the world, every prospective mine in the world, and trying to understand the numbers from my own perspective. You, you try not to, to pay too much attention to what uh, the sell side, the investment world is saying, and you know, the research they write, and you, you do your own work. And so by year three, or uh, year, going into the third year, I started talking publicly about that. And I did notice a change when I started calling people or showing up at conferences. They were, now I wasn't just a little guy, ooh, ooh, why, why do you do this to yourself? There was more of a more of a view of, okay, well, this guy, this is an outsider. Don't come in and tell us about our market. What do you know about nuclear fuel? And, and a beautiful part of investing like this is you don't need to be a nuclear engineer like many of these folks are, very smart people. Uh, you need to be able to have a fresh uh, and unbiased look at the numbers. So many of them, very nice folks, and you still talk to them. And so that's, the, I'm talking to, to pe- people who buy fuel for a living, and uh, they are uh, extremely bright people. Like I said, most of them are are highly educated, but they're not buying fuel all day long. This is not like the Walmart buyer who's buying shampoo every day filling shelves, right? This is very rarely do they go out and they go secure some uranium and then they're off doing what other what else nuclear engineers do and what people are trying to get uh, efficiency and improvements and the burn rates and all that other stuff. Uh, and because the, the price of uranium is so s- small compared to other feedstocks, whether it be natural gas or coal, where it's 80 or 90 percent, you know, uranium is single digits. The whole front end of the fuel cycle is is 20%. That includes conversion, enrichment, fabrication, all that stuff. So um, there is not this immense focus on understanding the macro drivers of the uranium. And what what you have learned and I have learned over the four years is there's a dependency on outside sources for their information. They do their own analytical modeling for internal stuff for uh, their own reactors. But in terms of the macro uranium market, that's what they pay outside sources. Not all, but most. Most of them do that. Not all. There are some who do their own, but it's 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 far in the minority. So uh, so that's who I was speaking to, and uh, fully aware, you know, by this time now, four years on, while I do have, we do speak to them, and they're cordial. We all they also think I'm uh, Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. They think I'm some <laughs> some big bad Wall Street guy coming up telling them they don't know what they're talking about, which nothing can be further from the truth. I'm I'm the our view, if our view is correct, which we think it is, actually saves them money in the long term. But there, uh, you know, and there are some of those, right, just because I might articulate the message well and I think our numbers make sense and uh, doesn't mean that uh, they're going to view it as, hey, this guy's just talking his book, right? He's He has a long bias towards uranium. So, Going in, you have to know who your audience is, and that's uh, so. That was the that was the background and understanding who they are and what they want to do. So, what I really started out by doing was was breaking it down to say, what do financial analysts do, right? So, don't don't think of me as a hedge fund guy because there's this negative connotation. But at you are, I am, Art and Adam, etc. Are we're financial analysts? That's what we do. We analyze businesses and industries, and 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 we've all been doing it for a very long time. So, once you've done your own research on the company or industry, I just let them know that, you know, our job then is to compare what we've uncovered on our own and compare it to the consensus estimates. 
and the current prices to what our view of the future is versus their view because commodities or stocks move up or down based upon whether they have exceeded, met, or disappointed the expectations for that. So try to lay that framework out for them. And I talked about how investment opportunities uh, with large gaps between consensus expectations and the reality for investors who invest the style that we do in a contrarian nature, those tend to be successful over time. And then contrarian investors tend to be most successful in those industries that are extremely underfollowed, where they've been left for dead, the industry is opaque, and where this group think is driven by just a few data sources or a worldview, and that's uranium. And that's kind of where I went with that. And I wanted them to understand where we're coming from on this. And then I walked them through what consensus is thinking. What does consensus say? Now, consensus, you know, there's very, there's only a handful of sell-side investment firms covering this. And there's a couple of industry uh, firms that uh, perform uh, analysis on the industry. And you tend to see the sell side, not all, there's a few on the sell side that do their own analysis, but you tend to see a lot of similar numbers to what the more industry-focused analysts will come up with. And uh, and and really, the consensus, what does it say about the uranium market? Demand is dropping through the 2020s from where it was just a couple of years ago. It says supply is not price sensitive, and there's no risk of a near-term price spike. And so then I kind of walk them through is, is what is the consensus's track record in that? Because you have to remember, as investors, Marcelo, you and me and Art and Adam at Segra, what we're doing is we're looking at changes in numbers all the time, right? Rate of change and who's saying what, and we're putting it on spreadsheets and we're saying, and we're not only doing our own research, but judging the analysts who are opining on this. And so the fuel buyers aren't doing that. They're not comparing consensus versus not. It, to them, they, they've they got a couple of sources and they, they follow it. So what I wanted to do was just kind of take a walk back through me- through memory lane and say, well, well, let's take a look. This is what consensus says. The numbers that are out there are somewhat dour, but what's consensus track record, right? Did it forecast the peaks and the troughs? Nope. Did it predict supply cuts this cycle? Absolutely not. Did it forecast the four or five times increase in conversion pricing this uh, just recently in the last uh, year and change? No. Did it forecast the recent 40% rise in, in separative work unit at the enrichment swoo pricing? No. So that was kind of the backdrop. Here's who we are. Here's what we do. Here's how we do it. And we talked about the way we do it, the way we analyze what we look at and all that stuff. And then we shared our view. And you and I have skin in the game, right? We have skin in the game. I, we and, and that is, you know, we can be anywhere. I can be looking at industry, any industry. You can be looking at any industry. The reason we have skin in the game, and not just a little skin in the game, <laughs> is because we settled upon thinking that this is the most asymmetric investment, certainly for me, that I have ever seen. <clears throat> asymmetric risk reward, meaning it's 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 not balanced, right? We view the upside versus downside as so dramatic. And thankfully, it's a very opaque market. Uh, so what we then talked about is really understanding why we're here and how we got here. And uh, I talked about this notion about the what what the industry thinks are fully loaded costs to run a mine. And it's the cost curve is wrong. It's broken. It doesn't make sense. The cost curve is based on a basically, it's only really a little, it's the cash cost and the capital cost. And if you were to look at one of the bodies uh, that opine on this, they say it's the capital cost to break even in the current market. It excludes sunk costs. It excludes corporate costs such as G&A, finance, exploration, and other potentially significant costs. And it does not calculate any incentive price that's needed to keep a mine running. And the whole thing is you can't run a mine if you can't 
can't afford to run a company. So when people look at these numbers, uh, let's pick MacArthur River. Let's pick on, on MacArthur River. Well, it's $16 cost. Uh, it's Cigar Lake's 23. Uh, the Kazakhs are 15. They're all in sustaining costs. Those are part of the costs. Those, those are mine level costs. Now you've got to add all the other costs that are associated with that. And consensus wasn't there. And so when you're thinking about what happened, well, consensus missed all of the supply cuts. The 25-ish percent of global supply, it missed. Sure. Because it doesn't cost Cameco 16 bucks to run MacArthur River at 23. It might cost them that much to run that mine. But even uh, there, there's the, the entire cost to run the company, which you're getting into the low to mid-30s per pound. right? So for fuel buyers to be sitting there or others to be sitting there saying, well, it's 16 bucks. They could sell uranium at 18. It's just not even remotely close. That's not how you build a long-term business and a long-term portfolio. So I walk them through that. I walk them through the same thing with Kazada Prom, where we think the fully baked cost is what we call it, is mid-20s. And uh, so I, I talked about that. And then what I really wanted to help them understand is how that happened. And I took them through the first quarter of 2017 when uh, consensus was calling for 150 million pounds of supply. Well, with each mine cut, whether it was the Kazakhs or MacArthur River or uh, you saw um, Ranger stockpiles, uh, Rossing slowing, you name it, whatever has been slowed, uh, all of a sudden you fast forward to today and you're at 130, 31 million pounds. So just in in a couple of years, you've seen almost almost 20 million pounds a year come out of the supply side numbers, right? And that was because it wasn't forecasted, right? So because it ignores, largely ignores the financing costs and all of the other costs to run the business. And one of the things that we always hear, and you hear this, is, yeah, but there's all these new projects out there. They're going to come online. They're going to fill any supply gap. Sure. And you say, oh. Right. Okay. Well, consensus largely ignores the financing costs, the timing, the permitting, and there's billions of dollars of projects that are needed to come online. And I kind of walked them through that by the middle 2020s to avoid a really crippling shortfall. And then why the why you know uh, why the prices have to double and 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 the window for required contracts is slowing down and stuff like that. So I walked them through the supply side, and then I, I made uh, a couple of points. I said uh, the the development stage companies uh, need about four and a half billion dollars to build the mines that are needed to fill these, this gap that's coming up. And you know, uranium mines, you're talking dog years, right? Seven years, 10 years, that's tomorrow. So they need a tremendous amount of runway to be able to get this done. And it was, you know, four and a half billion dollars. And the market cap of all of the de- developers is a billion dollars, yet they need oh, four and a half billion in capital. And, you know, it might, might, my message to them was good luck with that. <laughs> what I didn't say, and I should have, I thought about it afterwards, was, you know, Langer Heinrich with Paladin. Uh, they they have a five million pound per year mine. They have relationships. They're they're a proven producer. Uh, they were there last cycle, and and when the cycle kicks up again, I suspect that they'll be uh, front and center. Uh, they tried to raise their, or they did raise thirty million dollars in uh, thirty U.S. Uh, thirty Aussie in uh, capital a month ago, and the stock stock's been down forty percent. So, and this is a this is an established company. So if you think the markets, I was reminding the buyers, if you think the markets are going to step up to build these these mines that you want now, forget it. It's just not going to happen with these prices. And so, you know, that's kind of where we went on the supply side. And, you know, you tell me, I could keep kind of walking you through it or you could ask, you know. No, that's fantastic. And and um, I, I think uh, coming from you or, or people in the sector, it's worth more because uh, as I mentioned before, and you did too, we have skin in the game. So, 
it's not just an, uh, a report that we write and move on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, they see that we're here for a while, you know, we've been here, you know, four years now. That's not, uh, you know, that's not fast money coming in, right? And and one of the things you have to remember, um, in the last cycle, what you saw really drive these prices higher was about the 06, 07 time period. Remember the Prices started moving 03, 04 ish. Really, they started to move a little bit, and then 04 came. You had a little bit of flood at MacArthur River. Then 06, you had the Cigar Lake flood, and that's when prices went nuts. Interestingly enough, if you were to go back and look, Marcelo, at what the supply demand outlook was at the end of 2005, if you said, okay, what's the supply demand outlook look like for, by 2010? Let's look at the next five years. And you were a fuel buyer and looking at those numbers and you would have said, okay, well, there's a 70 million pound surplus over the next five years. Plenty of supply. <laughs> yeah, right. And then if you came in at the end of October and Cigar Lake, this big monster mine coming online in 07 flooded at the in October of 06 and you had no idea if it would ever come online and you did that math you would have had a 30 million pound surplus over that next five years because it came on in stages yet there was a s- anticipated surplus and the price of uranium went parabolic right so security of supply is very important to them and so you know when when we think about what's it's a very scary world if miners aren't incentivized to produce because I as we look at it we see all this state-owned Chinese and Indian production that will be needed it isn't being sold to the West you have the state-owned Russian Uzbek and Kazakh that that doesn't meet half of world demand. And that's a misnomer by people think, oh, you got all this cheap state-owned entity, they'll sell it, whatever. Well, first of all, the state-owned production is running at about a 70% utilization rate. Why? Because prices do matter to them. And and still, it's not enough. They could bring, you know, I, I, I chuckle when I see people say, well, the Kazakhs could bring out a few more million pounds. So what? Who cares? <laughs> what does that mean? First of all, they got to spend $150, $200 million to do it. But where's that fit in the grand scheme of things? It doesn't. Sure. And then some, some of the other things that, that I focused on with them was the geopolitical events that really are at the core. If you think about one of the things that was front and center when we were there was the Iran sanctions waivers that they didn't know every 90 days it's decided whether or not those countries and companies doing business with Iran in the civilian nuclear power business will get those waiver from sanctions because if they don't, if they didn't, and there were sanctions put on, let's say, Rosatom, the Russian state-owned company, well, the enriched uranium product that, that the U.S. utilities need to bring in from them would go out the window, right? So they'd have to scramble. And then you have the Russian suspension agreement that's coming on and it expires at December 2020. That limits to 20% that you can bring in from Russia. So there's a lot of going on. The other thing that you've seen that we reminded them of was you've seen a very, very perfect storm of good things happening for the the buy side of the uranium, for the utilities since Fukushima. You haven't seen floods, fires, other disruptions. That happens all the time in the uranium mining business. just hasn't happened. So you had surplus uranium plus no interruptions. They've become comfortable with it. Sure. And uh, Mike, how did uh, did the utilities take it? The ones in the audience. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I did that on the supply side. And I said, look, if nothing changes, you're going to have basically a 58, 60 million pound a year deficit by December 2028. And December 2028 is tomorrow in terms of what needs to be put into production. They understand timelines. And I told them that, look, by 2028, if if today, basically I said yesterday, <laughs> if, if, if projects didn't start getting built yesterday and price and long-term contracts being signed yesterday, when you fast forward to 2028, which is tomorrow in Uranium World, 
uh, because of the time lag that's required of all this, you will basically have 16% of global supply coming from the West. And 10% of that, so two-thirds of that, is coming from one mine, Olympic Dam, which is a copper producer, and uranium is a byproduct. And then we talk them through the demand side. And then, so you'll ask how they responded. I'll tell you after. We then walked through demand, and we showed how, you know, for a couple of years, people have thought that, uh, you know, Tim and I are the guys running around with aluminum hats on, uh, tinfoil hats, saying, yeah, no, really, it's a growth business. It's a growth business. We're telling you. It's a 2% grower. Well, the World Nuclear Association came out in September in their biannual report and said uh, for the first time in eight years, they've increased their projections across their low case, base case, and, and high case, and that uh, it's one of the best markets they've seen in a very long time. And that's just over the last two years. Well, when we did that, you know, we showed our numbers versus their numbers, uh, the WNA and versus consensus. And what you saw was since 2017, consensus numbers have dropped uh, like a, off a cliff. They've imploded. While the WNA numbers have gone up a little bit, and we showed them our numbers, but since the fourth quarter of 16 before the supply cuts, the consensus demand forecast for the years 2019 through 2030 has declined by 25 million pounds per year. It's a staggering amount. <clears throat> so all of this positive good news gets captured in the WNA report just released last month. And we've been running around very publicly saying it's a 2% grower, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less, but that basically, and, and yet consensus numbers during this time period of, of, of sort of a, a renaissance has imploded. So we, we kind of laid out that math, kind of walked them through that and uh, showed them the change in, in the fuel report versus consensus numbers. And it's, it's dramatic. And, uh, you know, we shared with them that we think that the, uh, there's a structural deficit now. We addressed the utility questions. Uh, you know, the consensus view is the inventories are too high. High. And we walked through just for the U.S. utilities, for example, from 06 to 19, the, the average commercial inventory, which is utility inventory and supplier inventory. It's 2.57 years and you're below two and a half today. The average utility inventory is 2.1. You're below that today. So the inventory argument we doesn't hold weight. And so we got done with all of that, wrapped it up. You know, it's a 20 minute talk. And um, it was, I would say, uh, it was way more anticipated than I thought. Uh, they moved my time slot up. I got there on a Sunday and everyone told me everyone's anticipating this. And I spoke. It was a packed room. And we had a number of utilities come up to us afterwards saying, can we talk? Saying, can we can we have discussions? You know, we sat down or we stood in the hallways or we grabbed a beer or we said, you know, let's set up a call over the next week or two to walk you through our numbers. And then there were some of those in there saying, screw you. Who are you, pal? You know, you, they didn't walk up to us and say that, but you could you could sense it. And, and you hear a little back channel. Who's this guy to come in and tell? us we're wrong. And one of the one of the big fuel buyers there was heard over saying, um, you know, we do our work. Well, so, and uh, yes, there are a few. And you know the Pareto principle, I think it's called, the, the 80-20 rule. And, and what you see is like this, and when we talk to traders and fuel buyers, they all do their work, whatever work they're doing. But, you know, there's, there's probably 20% of them that are doing their own modeling, their own macro uranium modeling. And those are, you're seeing that expressed in off-market conversations where it's not being put out for bid. If you listen to Cameco, you, you listen to t Tim yesterday or, or last week on the call saying that, uh, you know, they're, they're starting with a four handle, right? So people look at term pricing as though it's $32 a pound, but there are deals being struck higher. They just don't get reported by the price reporters because the price reporters take the lowest bid, not what the deal got signed on for, for long-term contracts. So if, if you had a few pounds, if you have a supplier with a few pounds and bid lower, yet a utility did an off-market transaction at a much higher price, that doesn't get reflected. And why that matters is that 80-20, where 20% are doing their own modeling, the other 80% who are not 
are just looking at what the reported pricing is. But this opened up a lot of conversations, and uh, I, I, it was, uh, I was very pleased with it. Uh, controversial, of course, because I'm, I'm going up there and shooting holes in consensus, and some of the folks might have thought that I was impugning their, their, uh, their work, uh, meaning their, the buyer's work, which was not my intention. And basically what I was saying is, look, <clears throat> you're going to pay 45, 50, 55, or 60. That's just where the math is going to settle out. Or you're going to pay a lot more if, if you don't step in right now and start signing these in mass. Yeah, we, we, we did hear from uh, Grant Isaac last week uh, about the transitioning scamming. And uh, UXC also presented in Nashville and the, they mentioned the reemergence of the SWU markets. Marcelo, that's a very important point you made. So if you look at, and I don't want to get too technical here on the, on the enrichment math, demand numbers, uh, depending on what tails, transactional tails you assume in your forecast in the enrichment phase, has a dramatic impact on, on the demand numbers, uh, the requirements in a given year. And it's just part of the enrichment math. And one of the things you noticed with, with consensus numbers is they drop those tail assumptions way low to where you were all of this underfeeding was occurring and it was a uh, so that the tail assumptions used out through 2030 once you get past i think 20 the mid 20s the low to uh, low to mid 20s you drop down to a number that really implied they were the same tails that they were using at peak underfeeding which the way it, the, the the way it works is the more that underfeeding was taking place you know producing that excess enriched uranium that was acting like a mine and selling it into the market the more you underfeed the more capacity you use and enriches are in the business of enriching selling enriched uranium product not selling uh, excess uranium that they get out because they have excess capacity they make far more money doing that and so you uh, and and that's done really just through in numbers <coughs> by by changing your assumption and so so yeah, UXC did present a paper, and they in, in their paper they said uh, we see basically swool capacity tightening, uh, which means transactional tails will have to go up, which is bodes well for uh, not to put words in their mouth, but essentially that means that puts upward pressure on uranium prices. Oh, sure. So in in your opinion, what are the key issues uh, the few buyers are thinking about now? So one of the things that we uh, we hear quite a bit is, hey, uh, I would say from from many many of them, we know twenty five spot isn't the right price. We know. 32 term isn't the right price. We get it. But as long as we see those prices, you know, for those that are not out forward leading the pack, these are more of the followers. You know, we've got to go to our chief, chief nuclear officer, our, our, our risk attorney, uh, our CFO, and we've got to explain why that's going to be. Well, we're happy to do that. We'll, get, we'll provide you all the data to show you how to do that. But they know these aren't the prices. And so it, it's got, it feels like it's just pushing on a string. It's not going to take a lot. And then what happens is as you start to see more of these off-market deals get signed higher, Cameco in the first quarter did, I think, 25 million pounds. And these negotiations take a long time. And so you still have the uncertainty about the working group, about the Iran sanctions waiver that just came and passed. But for 90 days, it was a big wake-up call. But as more deals get signed off-market, eventually you're going to have to start seeing those prices reported, right? People focus on the spot market. The spot market, Marcelo, is such a bullshit market, I can't even tell you. <laughs> if you think about this year, 47, 48 million pounds have traded. Financial intermediaries have done over 60%, 65%. I'm just pulling up my numbers right now as to what we've seen in, in a given year. Yeah, I mean, right now, spot market purchases through nine months are down, uh, the volumes are down 38%. 
And when you look at the split of those, it's 60% financial intermediaries. Last year it was 65%. The utilities are a third. The producers are only 7% of that. So all of these pounds that are sitting in the spot market, these are physical traders that are moving this stuff back and forth three, four, five times. And they'll trade for a dime or 15 or 25 cents. And the volumes are putrid. They're small volumes. You know, we we speak to several of the physical traders. These aren't guys with doing their own macro uranium analysis. They're using the same consensus data. And so they're trading for just, you know, 25 cents, 50 cents, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Those aren't pounds being purchased. I mean, a small amount of that, if we look at what's been purchased in the spot market this year uh, from utilities, right? 40, it's 42 million pounds. And, and so 12, 13 million pounds. Put that in context. If it's 12, 13 million pounds out of a market of, you know, 190, I mean, it's nothing. It's it's just nothing. And 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 last year you saw 80, 88 million pounds. Normally it's 40, 45 in that range. Last year it was 88. Why? Because they've been so out of the market and they've drawn down a lot of inventories. They didn't know which way it was going to go with 232. They were in their mind more aggressively. And then as 232 approached, uh, more of a, you were supposed to hear something in April and then it got extended, right? with a working group that at first quarter, they just kind of sat on their hands. And this year they're sitting on their hands. So people look at spots and say, well, it's not moving. It's noise. Because what you see now in the market, you can go buy a, f- a few pounds in spot market. If the carry traders come in, which means instead of a utility locking into a long, long-term contract, let's say they, they sign a two-year contract with, a, with a, a trader and the trader will go out and do a one or two-year deal and then they have to go out and buy the pounds and they'll do that and, and then they'll have to re-up again. They have to go secure that. The traders aren't sitting, most of them aren't sitting on inventory like that. So they got to go buy that. But still the overall pounds bought this year is nothing. So if you're doing those trades, you're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller because what's going to happen is a game of musical chairs. And what's going to happen is you're being too smart by half, right? So let me go out and do a few pounds. Let me do a trade. I'll get a couple. Of, then I'm going to go out and buy them and cover them in the spot market. And what's going to happen is they're not going to be there. And then you're going to get run over. So those are games that take place. Uh, it's not That's not a game. Carry trading is not a game. It's a real portion of the business. But we just think our view at Sachem Cove is the true underlying supply demand fundamentals aren't being captured in the market. Brilliant. Last question before I let you go, Mike. Um, most people I talk to are puzzled as why the few buyers are not taking advantage of this great opportunity to secure long-term supply of an essential material at bottom prices. Yep. You and I have talked a lot about this over the past few months. Yep. But it will be nice to go through it again, especially now after your presentation in Nashville. Yeah, sure. So could you please explain to us how few buyers think, how they make their decisions and what they look at? Sure. So first off, Mike Alkin standing in front of them, uh, tell, showing them the, the truth as we see it, doesn't mean they're going to go out tomorrow and do anything. You know, I'm just a Wall Street guy. What do they think, right? <laughs> but it does open up conversation. So I, I saw some people on Twitter saying, this stock, you know, the uranium price didn't move. I was like, what are you, out of your mind? You think because I stood up there and said something, it, it creates a, a new train of thought. It, it opens up discussion. But it's just human nature. So you got to understand, Marcelo, these guys and women are extremely bright. They're extremely dedicated. They make a nice living. Sure. They do not get paid to take uh, risk 
of separating themselves from the rest of the pack. They don't get financially rewarded. If you had an enterprising young fuel buyer or old fuel buyer, middle-aged fuel buyer, and said, I think 22, 24. Well, just, just look at the UF6 market. It went up by 400% over the last two, couple of years and no one got punished. You never get you never get punished for paying the same price as everyone else paid. Sure. You get punished if you were away from the pack. Like, And it all goes back to it's not a significant cost. The 2018 numbers came out from the U.S. again uh, recently, the overall cost per megawatt, and costs are down. I mean, it's so do they have pressures? Of course they do. But at the end of the day, uranium is the feedstock that fuels these things, fuels these reactors. But when you look at history, history is a great tool here. If you go back and look from the prior to go back to 2000, when, you know, the, the, the price was in 2003, the average spot price was eleven and a half dollars and there were 75 million pounds contracted when there were, when the price was $25, there were 240 million pounds contracted. When it was $89, there were 225 million pounds contracted. And so at, at when it was $50, $47, it was 250 million pounds. They were buying four or five X the amount when, when prices were going through the roof than when they were lower, right? Because it there's a recency bias and it's in uranium. It's like this in many industries and it's easy to extrapolate today into the future, especially when it's been a very elongated market in one direction or the other. And so because that fuel buyer is not compensated or or he doesn't keep the spread, Hey, you went out and bought it at 22. We could, we look at that next year. It's 50. You know what? You're going to get a bonus because you made that difference up, <laughs> right? That doesn't work that way. And, and it's just not the DNA of the industry. And so it sounds good. Well, buy low, sell high, right? Buy all of that stuff, throw it out the window. Not only is not how they're structured, but it's not how they've done it in the past. And when prices are 50 or 60 or 70, wherever they go and everyone's buying at that price, nobody gets in trouble. Where they get in trouble is if they don't have the, the supply or where they could also get in trouble is if they have to go back to their CFO because they took their inventories down too low and they got to go back for next year and say, listen, we don't have enough to run these things in a year or two. Now they're going to get themselves in trouble. And you do see this. Like I said, they're very bright. It's just there. There's only a couple of sources, a few sources of information out there and they use them and it is what it is. And if you don't get penalized for paying a higher price now, when they do start seeing it go, then they 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 start to to pay more attention. And it was a big deal on the conference call when they when Camacos and they've said it the last few quarters. People just have to be listening. You have to be in the fuel cycle. You know, we laugh. I've seen you at plenty of these conferences. Like I said, there are four, three, some if it's a packed conference, there's five investors. I don't see the sell side out at these conf- at, at the NEI conferences talking to the biggest fuel buyers. Maybe they're, they're not signed up. Uh, maybe they are uh, showing up, but I don't see them. Sure. Right. So you listen, you listen to these conference calls and you listen to these questions and you're like, well, we'll, we'll show up. Go, go, to, go to some of these and talk to the fuel buyers. Don't just speculate. You go see what's happening. And so, you know, this market, I think, is, uh, and by the way, that's not all of them. There's a couple of very good ones that I, I think are on the sell side, but most of them are consensus. But uh, yeah, so that, that don't, they're not financially incented, structurally incented to, to go out and pay different. Now, like I said, a few of them, 
right? That 80-20 rule who are big buyers, they understand the market and, and, and they do their, and they do it. And not that the other guys don't understand it, it's just they have to buy so, some of these guys have to buy so much fuel they're willing to go out and, uh, and secure it ahead of time. Sure. Awesome. Listen, Mike, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and talking to me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. My, Marcelo, always fun. I always enjoy it. Thanks for putting up with me, never being able to figure out the 16-hour, 15-hour time difference and always having to text, text you five times, making sure I got the right time right that we're going to speak. So uh, oh, It's a great pleasure. And waking up early is a privilege. My wife said to me, I have, I have clocks in my office that say London, Sydney, Moscow, New York, Hong Kong. <laughs> and I'll be talking. My wife will say, what are you doing in Tomorrow. I say, well, I, I have a call and I think it's this time. She's like, what's wrong with you? You have like seven clocks. How can you not keep track of it? <laughs> I, I still can't figure it out. So anyway. It happens, but it was great talking to you as always, Mike. All right, Marcelo. It was great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. <laughs>